was he by profession? He was a shepherd. And that those shepherd images come out in his message. He brought a message of warning epitomized by a certain metaphor. What metaphor from Amos describes the danger that Israel was in? It's actually how he opens his prophecy. Well, yeah, he comes back to this motif of a lion and sheep. He says, the lion is roaring. And then he talks about the lion will come and he will tear. He will consume and uh, he will scatter. The, the roaring was the prophesied judgment. It was the message of Amos himself. The judgment was coming for Israel's sin and idolatry. But the, the lion was going to make good on that roar and actually bring destruction and exile. What kind of response was this warning supposed to evoke in Israel? Exactly, repentance. It was supposed to return them to the Lord, escape this judgment, come back to God. And the same is true today. The lion is still roaring. God's word and his ambassadors still speak. There is a sure judgment awaiting all people. And all people today as well. As John the Baptist said, every tree that does not bear fruit, that is, every person that does not believe in Jesus and manifest a lifestyle of obedience toward him will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. The people today, ourselves included, live in danger of God's sudden judgment. And so we must learn from Amos. God is both holy and just. He hates sin and those who practice it. He is too good to turn a blind eye to blasphemy and oppression. He will punish all evil as it deserves. But how are we who are innately evil because of Adam to be spared? The only one who can save us from God is God. And this is why we must look to Jesus and his covering, his once for all covering is once for all sacrifice in our place in the cross. This is why we must give up all to follow Jesus. Questions about last week's lesson? Okay, well, at the end of Amos' prophecy last week, we saw a surprising message of hope and restoration for Israel. And we're going to see more of that unexpected theme today as we look at a second prophet to the northern kingdom, Hosea title of our class today is God Loves Israel. Hosea is perhaps a little more famous than Amos, but do we really understand the message of Hosea? Let's take time to study Hosea today together. Now, Hosea's prophecy is 14 chapters long, and we're not going to have time to closely study the whole book. What we're going to do instead is just highlight a key section and study that closely. So here's our outline for today's class. We're going to Focus on chapters 1 to 3. We're going to observe Hosea and Gomer as they are pictured. We're going to hear the prophecy from Hosea, from God through Hosea. We're going to observe, we're going to interpret, and then we're going to consider application for ourselves based on Hosea's prophecy in the beginning of this book. Let's pray for God's blessing on this time of instruction. Lord, uh, Lord God, this is an amazing, amazing word here in Hosea. And really, all these latter prophets, they have such amazing declarations. They show your holiness, but they also show your love. They show your justice, but they also show your faithfulness. And it is so surprising in one sense, the goodness that you have in store for Israel, and that would also include the Gentiles. And yet, it's not surprising, because it's something that you promised so early on in your revelation. So God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this well and help the people to understand it and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Hosea, page 899 in the Pew Bible. If you're using a different Bible, just keep turning in the Old Testament until you get past Ezekiel and Daniel. Hosea comes right after that, right before Joel and Amos. Now, like I said, we're going to read and observe the first three chapters, but let's first orient ourselves 
to the historical context by considering Hosea 1.1. So page 899 in the Pew Bible, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just read that one verse. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. All right, a couple of observations right off the bat here. Notice Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Where have we seen this king lately? Yeah, he was the king under whom Amos was prophesying in Israel, Jeroboam the second. And then we have four kings of Judah mentioned. Uzziah, we've met him before. He was also with Amos. He reigned contemporaneously with Jeroboam. He was a good king, but he made that big mistake by trying to offer incense. He, he did that great evil. Um, his son, Jotham, was also a good king. Ahaz, who came afterwards, was an evil king. While the fourth son, Hezekiah, was a great king, and he was the most righteous king of all of Judah's kings. Just as a reminder, during Hezekiah's reign, what notable event came upon the northern kingdom? Assyria came, conquered them, and took the survivors into exile. So, so that happens during the reign of Hezekiah. Now since Hosea was a prophet under all of these kings, both Israel and Judah, that means he was a prophet for a long time. Amos was commissioned for a short time, and he wasn't a career prophet, but Hosea is different. He's probably ministering from about 775 to about 715 BC, 60 years of prophetic ministry, if he's going to minister under all these kings. That's a long period of declaring God's word to God's people. And it makes Hosea a contemporary of Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. So let's now actually look at Hosea's prophecy. We're going to observe each chapter, and then we're going to take all that we've observed and come back to interpretive conclusions. But we start with chapter 1. Let's read verses 2 to 11. Follow along with me, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Then, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Okay, let's observe. The first thing God says to Hosea, the first time God speaks to Hosea, is a command. What's the command? Take a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. That's God's command. Now we should note that the word for harlotry here can also be translated adultery. The Hebrew verb actually, or the word comes from a Hebrew verb that means to commit adultery. So the command could also read, take to yourself a wife of adultery and children of adultery. Notice the reason given for this command. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, or the land commits flagrant adultery. In other words, this wife that I'm commanding you to take will be just like the land. Hosea obeys God and marries Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Now those are specific names, specific family information. The wife gives birth to three children, 
but God commands specific names to be given to each child and then explains why. First, Gomer has a son named Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows, but it could also mean God scatters. It was the name of a city in Israel in which King Ahab had set his palace and his capital. It was also the name of a valley in which many important battles were fought, both in biblical times and in times since. The Valley of Jezreel is also known as the Plains of Megiddo, in Greek, Armageddon. But God gives the specific reasoning for naming this child Jezreel. What's God's explanation? Why name him Jezreel? So there's two things, but the first one mentioned is there was bloodshed that took place at Jezreel by Jehu, and I'm going to punish his house for that. Now, what is this bloodshed he's talking about here? What is this slaughter? Recall that God anointed Jehu to become king and to punish Ahab's house for all their evil by killing every male of Ahab's line. As has happened frequently with the kings in the northern kingdom, God says, I'm going to annihilate your house. I'm going to remove your name from Israel. And he actually commanded Jehu to cut off every male from Ahab. Jehu fulfilled this command, but he also did more. 2 Kings 10.11 says, So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his acquaintances, and his priests, until he left him without a survivor. So there was definitely bloodshed that took place at Jezreel. But there's a second part. God says, I'm going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So there's a prophecy about another location, another Jezreel, where God says, I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to um, break Israel's military strength in that location. So this son, and the name of this son, is going to be a prophecy regarding two different judgments. One on the house of Ahab, I'm sorry, the house of Jehu, and one on Israel as a whole. By the way, God had promised Jehu that because he had accomplished the slaying of Ahab's descendants, that God would give Jehu's descendants four generations on the throne of Israel. Guess which king is the fourth generation from Jehu? Jeroboam II. So the time for the removal of that line from the throne is at hand. So Hosea's son, Jezreel, is a living prophecy of judgment against the king of Israel and the people of Israel. Then there's a second child. Gomer has a daughter, and her name is Lo-Ruhamah. Now you may notice the note in your Bibles, which gives you the translation of the name. It means not pitied, or she has not obtained compassion. And God explains the reasoning of that name. I will no longer have compassion on the children of Israel, or ever forgive their sin though God does promise compassion and deliverance to Judah. Now, this daughter is also a living reminder of what, uh, uh, that God will no longer have compassion on Israel. And then there's one more child. Gomer has a son named Lo-Ami, and that name means not my people. And God gives the reason, why are you naming this kid this name? Because you are not my people, and I am not your God. So another living reminder of God's pronouncement in the name of this son of the prof, or uh, the son of Gomer. But then notice verse ten, a transition word. Yet that word indicates what? What kind of word is that? Well, it is definitely going to turn into a hopeful section. Um, what would you say? It's a contrasting word. So. All these things that he said up to this point, they're all about judgment. But then there's this contrasting word, and a new hopeful section begins. And you may even notice that the formatting of your Bible changes at this point, indicating that there's a switch from prose to poetry. Verses 10 to 11 feature a number of promises from God about the future. What's one of those promises? Right, he says, Israel will again multiply into a great people. What's another one? That's right. 
Israel and Judah will be gathered together and led by one ruler. What's another one? That's right. A people who were said not to be God's people or people disowned by God will be called his people and will even be called his sons. And it says they will go up from the land. This section concludes with another reason for all of this. For great will be the day of Jezreel. As we noted, Jezreel can mean scattering, and that, refers, that can refer to judgment, but it can also mean sowing, like God sowing his people back in the land or firmly planting his people in the land. God says there is going to be a day of sowing. That day is going to be great. Great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, this is chapter 1. This section of poetry continues into chapter 2, though it's a little bit different. Let's now actually turn over to chapter 2 and observe that section. It's a little bit longer. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll observe. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down to verse 23. Say to your brothers, Ami, which means my people, and to your sisters, Ruhama, meaning she has received compassion. Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now or better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time, and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, Behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and you will no longer call me Bali. For I will remove the names of the Baal, the the bales from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. And that day I will also make a covenant for them, when, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Lo Ruhama, and I will say to those who are not my people, Lo Ami, you are my people. And they will say, You are my God. All right, this is pretty awesome, pretty incredible. 
Let's observe. Though we had a singular Lo Ami and a singular Lo Ruhama in chapter 1, what two shifts take place in chapter 2, verse 1? They're made plural, and what happens to the names? Yeah, the low has been cut off. They've been reversed. Instead of not my people, they are my people. And instead of not receive compassion, it is you have received compassion. Now, what action does God urge in verse 2? He addresses the children. What does he tell them to do? Yeah, contend with your mother and tell her to do what? Yeah, put away your harlotry. Tell her to stop being an adulteress. Tell her to stop being unfaithful. If she will not stop, what will be the result according to verses 3 and 4? Yeah, she'll be exposed. What else? What will be taken away? The things that nourished her, the sustenance, those things will be taken away. Um, it's going to be made like a desert land. And she's no longer going to receive compassion. Nor will her children, or I'm sorry, not her. Her children will no longer receive compassion since they are the children of a harlot. Now, God says in verse 4 that her mother has indeed played the harlot. But what motivates her to do so, according to verse 5 and verse 12? That's right. She thinks that it's the lovers who have been giving her all the things that she wanted and all the things that she needed. They are the ones who have given me my flax and my food and my drink. But this is a mistaken thought, and George, you already mentioned why, because in verse 8, God says she didn't realize that I was the one who was doing all that. She kept saying, thank you, lovers, for giving me all this stuff, but God was saying the whole time, I'm the one giving that to you. They don't give that to you. But she used that as an excuse to keep going after her lovers. She thinks her lovers provide her sustenance and joy. God, therefore, provides a promises, a series of judgments on this adulterous woman. We see this in verses 6 and 7, verses 9 to 13. We already saw it a little bit in verse 3 and verse 4. In verses 6 to 7, God promises he will make it impossible for this woman to reach or find her lovers. In verse 9, he promises to take back, withhold, or destroy the provision, provisions granted to this woman. In verses 10 to 12, he promises to expose her shameful behavior before her lovers. In verse 11, he promises to put an end to her Sabbaths and her joyful religious festivals. And in verse 13, he promises to punish her for pursuing false gods. But there's also a promise at the end of verse 7. What will the woman do when she sees all this happening to her? She will return to her husband, saying, it was better with him than it is now. And then there's another series of promises from verses 14 to 23. What are the different promises that God gives there about the future? What's one? Oh, yeah, he says, I'm going to, we could break that down into some specific phrases, but he says, I'm going to bring her back to myself. I'm going to allure her again. I'm going to speak kindly to her, verse 14. What else does he promise? Yeah, Danielle. That's right. I'll give back to her her land and the sustenance of that land. I'll give back those, those provisions that I took away from her. What else? Right, I will remove the false gods, the false worship. I won't even remember, let her remember the names of the false gods. She won't even call me my Bali or my Bailey 
which means my Lord, which was one of the names of God, but he says, you won't even call me that anymore because that may remind you of those other gods, those false gods you worship. I'll totally remove them from your, from your mouth and from your memory. You won't worship the false gods anymore. A number of other promises too. He says that she will be joyful again, verse 15. He will grant her safety from wild beasts and from military enemies, verse 18. God will betroth her to himself in complete righteousness and faithful covenant love. Not just his, but hers. God will sow her again in the land for himself. God will have compassion on the one who formerly had none and will take a forlorn people for himself. And that people, according to verse 24, will acknowledge that he is their God. Now notice in all these declarations, who is the one who said to accomplish all this? God himself. I will do all of this. Now before we turn to interpretation, there is one more chapter that I want us to read, and it's a short chapter. Look over at chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 to 6. And this will complete, the, really, the first section of Hosea. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. All right, let's observe this last section. What does God command Hosea to do in verse 1? Love again a woman who, in spite of her husband's love, is an adulteress. It doesn't say which woman that is specifically. But it does say love again a woman. What will this action a parallel according to verse 1? Yes, Sue? That's right, God's own love to unfaithful Israel. In response to this command, verse 2 says Hosea bought her. I'm not told who the her is specifically here. For 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. That one and a half homers is equal to about 10 baths or 220 liters. So a fair amount of barley. In total, the barley and the silver would equal about 30 shekels of silver. The price, the common price of a slave. Hosea buys this woman and then tells this woman a few things. You shall stay with me many days. You shall no longer play the harlot. You shall no longer have a man. Now that's kind of a weird phrase. The ESV, the NIV, and the King James Version interpreted a little bit differently. It says, you shall no longer have another man. And then he says, so shall I be with you. Then the Lord gives the explanation of those things that Hosea just said in verse 4. Because again, notice that transition word, for... Just as this woman will remain many days in this state with Hosea, so the sons of Israel will remain many days without king, prince, sacrifice, sacred pillar, ephod, or household idols. After those many days, verse 5 says, what will the sons of Israel do? They will seek God again. They will return to God. They will seek him and David their king. They will come trembling toward the Lord and his goodness in the last days. Okay, now having observed, let's see all those things that we just noticed there. Having observed these three chapters, let's now go back and come to interpretive conclusions on each of these chapters. We'll kind of start in specific pieces and build up to something greater. Whom do Hosea and Gomer represent? God in Israel. Yeah, certainly. Every time God says in chapter 1 something for Hosea to do with Gomer, he says, and this is what I'm doing with Israel. 
So Hosea and Gomer represent God and Israel. Is chapter 2 of Hosea addressed to Gomer or to Israel? He says, say to your mother, contend, or contend with your mother. But is he talking about Gomer or is he talking about Israel? Remember some of the things he promised to this woman or promised about this woman. In a way, it's both, but really this is about Israel. Now, the reason I say it's kind of both is because the things he says about Israel are based on the parallel to Gomer. Just as Gomer is like this, Israel will be like this. And here's how I'm going to respond. But this is really about Israel. When it talks about removing her Sabbaths and her festivals, it doesn't make sense if he's talking about Gomer. He's talking about Israel there and removing her from the land. He's really talking about Israel. Was Gomer a prostitute or an adulteress before Hosea married her? Probably not. Now, we often think about Hosea as the prophet who married a prostitute. That's not actually what the text says. God calls Hosea to marry a wife of harlotry or a wife of adultery, saying that that is what typifies the land. A person didn't have to already be this. Any woman was going to become this because of the spiritual state of Israel. Because the people were spiritually immoral, it was inevitable that they would become physically immoral. And so whomever Hosea chose as a wife was going to become an adulteress. Hosea 4, 12 to 14 backs up this interpretation. Here's what it says there. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore... Your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. For the men themselves, or I'm sorry, I skipped a word there. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. So Hosea didn't need to marry a prostitute to marry an immoral woman. Immorality was characteristic of Israel's men and women. So if he married anyone, there was a good chance she would be immoral. Furthermore, many of the images of God and Israel in the Bible, they speak of Israel as a beautiful and blessed woman who turns unfaithful after God makes a covenant with her. Think of Ezekiel 16, where he says, I raised you up uh, when you were just a baby squirming in your blood. You became a beautiful woman. I betrothed you to myself, and then you turned away from me. So it's not that she was immoral already. It's that she turned immoral. Did Hosea actually marry Gomer? Or was all of this just a prophetic vision? What do you think, Rob? I know. Many respected commentators and interpreters do believe that this is all just a vision. But I'm going to submit to you that it's not that this is actually literal, that this really happened. And I'll tell you why I say that. For those who say that this is all a vision, I think it's partly because they don't think that God would actually command his prophet to do this. Why would he command a God's holy prophet to marry someone who would be an adulteress? And they, they make parallels to some of the other prophets. And they say, look, this prophet was commanded to do something, but he was doing that in a vision, like when so-and-so was told to go measure Jerusalem with a plumb line or something like that. He didn't actually do it. That was just all in a vision. But, as we observe the text, there's no indication of a vision in chapter 1. It doesn't say, and then I saw, and God told me to do something. The very first word of God, from the very first revelation to Hosea, is a command. Go and marry a wife of adultery. And we should note that while some prophets do, some other prophets besides Hosea, they do things only in a vision, there are, there are other prophets who do things in real life, even though they are symbolic. Like there's that one prophet you may remember in, I think, um, the historical books who he commanded one of, his bi one of the people with him to strike him on the face. And the person wouldn't do it, and so he cursed that person. And then another person actually did do it. He was actually hurt. And that was because he was going to present, um, present a disguise, as it were, to the king of Israel and then deliver a prophetic message. I think also of another prophet who was told to 
um, take a, a linen belt or something like that and hide it in a rock and then later pick up that belt and it was all frayed and, and destroyed. And that, was, that wasn't actual happening, though it had symbolic significance. So I think it is here. There's no indication that this is all a vision. There's no customary language of visions like I saw such and such or the Lord showed me. It simply starts with God's command and what Hosea does in response. Moreover, we're given specific information about this woman. She has a name, and she has a father who has a name. And these names are not symbolically significant. Gomer means completion. Diblin means two cakes. That doesn't seem to be super significant in terms of a prophecy. This is just normal family information. So really, I, I believe that this is something that actually took place. And the fact that people want to make this just figurative, I think just emphasizes the staggering nature of what God told Hosea to do and what it, um, what it symbolized about God. Like God, or like Hosea, God entered into covenant with Israel knowing she would be unfaithful. If we look at Hosea and we're like, oh man, that is just crazy. How much more should we say that about God? This really happened. Were the children born to Gomer also Hosea's, or were they illegitimate? What's that? It's a little bit hard to tell. The, the text doesn't say specifically that they were or they weren't, though I'm going to say they probably were not Hosea's. And, and again, I'll tell you why. God tells Hosea not only to take a wife of adultery, but to take children of adultery. Seems to indicate that he's not going to be able to trust the children that he has if his wife is really adulterous. He doesn't know whether they really belong to him. Furthermore, after making the parallel of Gomer to the children of Israel in chapter 2, God says in Hosea 2.4, Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. He says, I don't, I don't, I'm not obligated to show them compassion because they're not really my children. Now, if that's true of Israel, then it would make sense that that would be true of the symbol of Israel, that is Gomer. If this is indeed true, and I think it is, I think the evidence is more on that side, this adds additional weight to the names that Hosea gives to his children, or at least the two of his children. Lo Ruhama, no compassion. What Hosea is saying is, she's not my girl, so she deserves no compassion from me. Or lo ami, not my people. Could a person more obviously announce a child as illegitimate than by naming him not mine? Now the name Jezreel is a little different. It doesn't seem to have that same kind of a announcement to it. And the text does specifically say that Gomer bore him, Hosea, that is, uh, bore him this son, bore Hosea this son, and that phrase is absent with the two other children. Is that significant? Well, there is a distinction in the passage, but in other places of scripture, that doesn't seem to be significant. Legitimate children are born without saying that he was born to so-and-so. So maybe Jezreel is different. Maybe Jezreel is just like the other children. Now again, if you're feeling like, whoa, that is just crazy. Like, this really happened to Isaiah, and the children were really illegitimate, and he really gave them these names. If you're feeling the gravitas over this family situation, this should again inform you about how you ought to feel about God and what he's been doing with Israel. They look to him for compassion, but he knows they don't really belong to him. And so they deserve no compassion. They call themselves the people of God. Oh, God save us, we're your people. But he says, you're not really my people. Look at the way you're living. Look at the, the way you serve your other gods. You're not my people. You are illegitimate sons of a spiritually adulterous mother. And then, how much more impactful are God's words promising to reverse these names for Israel and reverse their situation? It's like Hosea saying, I know these children aren't mine, but I will take these children as my own and show them a father's compassion. God says the same thing. That's what he's going to do for Israel. You children of Israel don't really belong to me, but one day I will take you as my own. I will treat you as real sons and daughters, and you will have a father's care, a 
good fathers care. Another question. Why did God promise to judge Jehu's house when Jehu was just obeying the command of the Lord? God said, destroy the line of Ahab. But now he says in Hosea, I'm going to judge you for the slaughter in Jezreel. Why? I think that probably is the answer. Yeah, Bill mentioned that as from the passage we heard earlier. It doesn't say he just killed the male descendants of Ahab, but he killed just the acquaintances of um, Ahab's line and the, the nobles that were under Ahab and even the priests under Ahab. That was not specifically commanded by God. So it sounds like out of his supposed zeal for obeying the command of the Lord, he actually went beyond the command of the Lord and just reveled in massacre. Now it's possible there were other details that we didn't get, but there was certainly something about the way that, Je that Jehu obeyed the command of God that was evil. And God says, I'm going to judge you for it. In fact, I'll make you like what you did. I'll, I'll annihilate your house in the same way. Now, who is the woman that Hosea buys in Hosea 3? She's not named, at least in that chapter. So who is she? Yeah, Roy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. This is best understood to be Gomer, his wayward wife. Because this is the only way, as you were saying, Roy, to make sense of the analogy of God and Israel. If Israel, um, I'm sorry, if Hosea and Gomer are supposed to be a symbol or an analogy, if Hosea were to take a different woman, then that suggests that God would take a different spouse himself. That he, even though he's promising to restore Israel, he's actually going to go after someone else. That doesn't make sense. The promises that God gives in these chapters center around Israel. Now, they're going to include the Gentiles too, but they center around Israel. So if that's true of Israel, then when God says, love again a woman who is an adulteress, though loved by her husband, he means your first wife, Gomer, who has left you. But why does he need to buy her? It's kind of abruptly mentioned in the text. It says, go again and love her. And he says, and he went and bought her for this certain price. Why would he have to do that? Yeah, Danielle. Yeah, it seems like certain things had transpired so that she had to be bought, that she actually belonged to someone as a slave at that point, and that was indeed the price of a slave. Now, perhaps one could say, oh, this was the, basically like a bribe to get her away from her lover or something like that, but I think it's more likely that she had become a slave. And this, again, we could surmise an explanation that is consistent with what happens with Israel. Israel turns away from God. She becomes estranged from her heavenly husband, but is also later forsaken by her adulterous lovers. She goes after these lovers, but then they turn on her, and she has nothing left. And so in the same way, we probably have something like that, or we probably have something like that happen to Gomer. She goes after her lovers, leaves Hosea, but then she's abandoned by them, doesn't have any way to survive, and so she sells herself as a slave. And she may have been even a prostitute at this point working as a sex slave, basically. But Hosea buys her back. What is Gomer's condition after she returns with Hosea? Is everything back to the way it was? Or are things different? Certainly that. Um, as you were saying, Joe, that she was bound to just Hosea. He says, you're no longer going to play the harlot. Just like God said with Israel, I'm going to cut you off from your lovers. Hosea says, I'm going to cut you off from your lovers. You're not going to be a harlot, but you're going to stay with me. You're going to stay with me many days. But is she fully restored to Hosea? I would think not because of the parallel that is immediately made with Israel. Because Hosea says, you're going to stay with me many days and these various things will happen. And then God says, Israel also is going to be in a certain condition many days. But that condition is not a fully restored one. So it may be that even though she was brought back into Hosea's house, they didn't enjoy full fellowship immediately. 
They didn't enjoy full air, uh, marital intimacy immediately. Why would that be? Was he just punishing her? I don't know exactly. But it may be, and I think this is this fits with the parallel with Israel, that she had not yet learned to love Hosea. She was bought back by him, but she still didn't love him. She still was longing for her lovers that she no longer could visit anymore. He says, until you understand that you can't have that, we're just going to be in this state. We're not going to have this fully restored union. And again, I say that because of the parallel with Israel. God says to Israel, there's going to be many days where you, hold on, where's my thing? Oh yeah, you will be without king, prince, sacrifice, sacred pillar, ephod, or household idols. In other words, what will Israel be without for many days? Say that again. They will be without um, public worship. Their worship system will be gone. Now, it's interesting you say proper worship because some of the things mentioned here are not proper, like household idols. <laughs> That's definitely not proper. Um, but he also says that you're not going to have the ephod. You're not going to have sacrifice. And sacrifice was part of public worship. He says, I'm going to remove that, or proper public worship. He says, I'm going to remove that from you too. And he also says you're going to be without princes or kings. I'm going to remove the kingship from you. The Hebrew kings that you've enjoyed for a long time, you're no longer going to have that. You'll be without royal leadership, royal Hebrew leadership, and you'll be without a public worship system, your public worship system proper or otherwise. And then after that, you will be fully restored. But you're going to be in that situation for a time. So again, that's why I think that perhaps Gomer was not fully restored when she came back to him. There's going to be an interim period. Now, consider the various promises that we've seen in these first three chapters of Hosea. On the one hand, we've seen because of Israel's sin, God promised to disown and cut off compassion from Israel. He promised judgment on Israel's king, the religious system, and the people. They would lose all their sources of joy and sustenance. They would be carried away into exile. But God also promised to restore Israel. He promised to again take Israel as his people and again show them compassion. He would reunite Israel and Judah under one king. He would restore the sources of joy and provision. He would sow the people back into the land, into their land. But let's not misunderstand. God isn't going to simply do this for a people, uh, do all this for people stubbornly persisting in sin. A people stubbornly rebellious is not going to say, eh, you're continually rebellious, but I'm going to bless you anyways. Because what is the most significant promise made in all of these chapters? When he says, I will betroth you to myself in faithfulness, I will allure you, you will say, you are my God. What is he promising about Israel? Yeah, Roy. Complete restoration in what sense? That's right. God will cause Israel to seek him. God will cause Israel to love him. God will cause the wayward wife to rejoice in her husband. This is really the most significant part. He would turn the people back to himself. And it's just like we saw in Deuteronomy, right? A couple of lessons ago, God promised to Moses, one day I will circumcise Israel's heart and then they will never depart from me again. We see the same thing here. God says, I will allure you. Not I will try to allure you and I hope you like me. No, he says, I will allure you. I will betroth you to myself. You will be faithful when I do this. Israel will return and seek the Lord, and they will return to David, their king. They will come trembling to the Lord in his goodness in the last days. They will say sincerely, you are my husband. You are my God. How could Israel possibly do that? They're so unfaithful, so stubborn. They've been unfaithful all to this point. Well, the answer is, as Roy said, God himself will accomplish it. I will do it. Yes, Craig. 
Exactly. And that's exactly where I'm going next, really. Um, Craig, you mentioned that this is just like the salvation process today. And it is. This is the wonder of the gospel. I mean, there are many wondrous aspects of the gospel, but I think this is a central one, if not the central one. God does not simply say, you know what, you're really evil, but I'm going to ignore your sin and I'm just going to bless you. He says, no, you are really evil. And in your current state, my holiness and my justice will not allow me to bless you, but forces me to destroy you. Therefore, here is what I will do. Here is how I will show my great love and undeserved favor. I will change your heart. I will cleanse you. I, will ma- I myself will provide a sacrifice that will cover your sins completely. I will give you a new heart. I will cause you to walk in a lifestyle of obedience. I will cause you to love me and believe in me as you ought. And with my holiness and justice satisfied in this way, I will then pour out my abundant love and generosity on you forever. That is the great love of God. It doesn't simply say, I'm going to love you even though you're so evil. He says, I'm going to make you into a new creation that is holy, and therefore I will be free to pour out my love on you in all its abundance. That's the beauty of the gospel displayed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And did Israel deserve that? No, not at all. They should have turned to God even, or they were obligated to turn to God for all the different things that he did, for his patience, for the wrath that was on them, for uh, the, the gracious things he's done for them. He deserved, or they deserved to just be cast off by God forever. But he says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to bring you back in spite of your sin. I'm going to bring you back totally. I'm going to change your heart. You didn't deserve me to do this for you, but I'm going to do it because I'm that good. And I'm going to do this because I remember my covenant with Abraham where I promised that I would do these things. Why did I promise that to him? Because I'm good. He didn't deserve it either, but I'm good. What we've seen in the first three chapters of Hosea is really the theme of the whole book of Hosea. As you keep going through the the book, and I hope that you do, I hope that you read through the rest of Hosea, you'll see that he's just emphasizing again and again, you are a spiritual harlot. You are so unfaithful to God. But look at how completely faithful he is to you. He's so faithful that he himself will bring you back. Not just bring you back into his house and you don't love him, but he's going to actually cause you to love him again. He's that good of a husband. The people, as he keeps showing them their harlotry, he says, or he shows them to be ungrateful, totally worthy of God's wrath. But by showing God's complete faithfulness and love, he shows how great God is and how worthy of turning to God, um, or how worthy it would be for the purple to turn to God. Because really, that's the point of this. Just like the book of Amos, the point of the book of Hosea is repentance. Turn back to God. He's that loving. Let God restore you. Don't be like the shameless and foolish adulteress who stubbornly fights against her good husband. It's as Hosea 14, 1-3 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. That's exactly it. True for them, true for us too. Let's now consider application. God promised all this to Israel. And even though we're not Israelites, as we've already seen, we can become recipients of the same undeserved love of God. Paul and Peter both quote Hosea 1 um, 1 to 2 in their writings, Romans 9, 25 and 26, and 1 Peter 2, 10, showing that the people God one day intended to take as his own, the people that were not his people, included Gentiles, included us. We Gentiles can become grafted into Abraham's tree, into the covenant that was given by God. Salvation is the same for both Jew and Greek. If we turn from our sins and believe in the Son of God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we will be saved as well as Israel and experience God's never-ending faithfulness and love. Israel 
has never had all these promises fulfilled for them, not in full. The return from exile did not fulfill them, nor did, uh, did Israel in the church symbolically fulfill them. Rather, they still await fulfillment. God will betroth Israel to himself again one day in never-ending faithfulness. He will establish again the throne of David, reuniting Israel and Judah. The kingdom of God will one day be on earth as God promised to Israel. But we, even though we're not Jews, can have a part in that kingdom. We can be brought in. Or like the people on the highways. You remember that one parable that um, Jesus tells about the banquet? Various people were invited, but they wouldn't come. He says, bring in the blind and the lame. They say, there's still room. We've done all that. And he says, go get the people on the highways. The people who aren't really part of this community, bring them in. They'll enjoy my banquet, while those stubborn original invitees will not. We can be brought into God's kingdom, even though we're technically not from the line of Israel. We can, we can have this. But let us not sin against the monumental love of God. Or we, like this generation of Israel in Hosea's time, in the same way the generation of Israel in Jesus' time, we will prove ourselves to be harlots, to be utterly ungrateful and wicked, ripe for the full justice and judgment of God. Not all Israel is saved. This is not a promise saying, I'm going to save you, uh, I'm going to save every single one of you, even though you're all evil. He says, no, I'm going to judge many of you but there will be a time where I'll restore you as a people. Not this generation, but a coming generation. We could prove ourselves to be not among that saved generation if we refuse God's love, if we sin against God's love. We'll have no part of God's kingdom, but we'll instead be assigned the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a couple questions for you to consider as we end our lesson today. Have you come to see the faithful, undeserved love of God to you and your previous incessant rebellion toward him? Have you seen that you are just like Israel? And just as he acted with Israel, he has acted with you. God has been gracious and faithful. Do you still spurn God's patient love and invite judgment on yourself? Are you a spiritual adulterer or adulteress? Do you put on a show of righteousness, a show of faithfulness for others to see and maybe even thinking you can deceive God with this show, but in reality you love and worship something else besides God, even many things besides God? Remember that it's not simply what you feel in your heart. Oh, I feel like I love God. What's really in your heart is manifest in what you do what you say, what you think, and what you do every day. That shows you where your heart is. Do you falsely believe, as Israel's did, that the good things that you have, your sustenance, it has come from you serving idols rather than serving God? Do you believe that it's your own strength or wisdom that has sustained you and brought you to where you are in your life? Do you believe that somehow, through your hard work or your righteousness, you've earned the universe's blessing? rather than seeing that Yahweh has been bestowing on you it the whole time, undeservedly? Everything, every good thing you have comes from God. He's the giver of good gifts. Do you still believe that somehow you're getting it somewhere else? And do you love and praise God for his gracious love to you? For his actually, if you're in Christ, giving you a new heart and causing you to see him as he really is, causing you to believe in him and then to inherit his blessing. We're out of time today. Though Israel heard this declaration from Hosea, they as a kingdom did not repent. Therefore God came as the lion of judgment, just as he promised to. He came with judgment on that generation, just as Amos and Hosea prophesied. And that's what we're going to look at next week. God judges Israel. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, great God, we thank you for this word. This is just so incredible that your love is that deep for those who do not deserve it, for those who are spiritually harlotrous. Our sins are so great, God. Apart from you, we are abundantly wicked. But not only have you been patient with us, but 
God, for those of us here who believe in your son, you did all of the work. You changed our hearts. You caused us to see. You brought us to yourself. And now we're going to experience all of the abundant goodness that you have. You're going to lavish on us your treasures. Both now and forever. We'll be blessed by you. You did all of that for us. And we didn't deserve it. Thank you. Thank you for being so gracious and changing our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do more of that for the people that we know that don't know you. I pray that they'd be saved, that they can be free from their, their life of slavery. And God, that they would come back to you and they would know your love and they would receive your abundant goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.